I'm Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News and author of the New York Times bestselling book, Breaking the News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. On a Hawaiian Shirt Friday edition, we get into Kevin McCarthy's epic house speech that went well into the morning opposing Biden's Build Back Better agenda. It was very well received uh, by the conservative base, as far as I could tell online, and the Breitbart audience as well. And it makes you think maybe the Republican establishment is starting to get it, that the fight back content is really what the people are craving at this time. We also play clips of the Senate grilling of the commie from Cornell Amarova, Joe Biden's uh, pick to be one of the most powerful people in finance and economics in the currency in this country, and her ties to the communist philosophy in general in the Soviet Union and her desire to bankrupt the oil and gas industry. Uh, Her testimony was very unpersuasive and deeply concerning for anyone who has any money whatsoever or uses money or would like to one day use money. Also, did a Substack citizen journalist crack the code on why ivermectin may or may not be working when it comes to a coronavirus therapeutic? Uh, I get into that as well in a fascinating section. In the monologue, before we speak to our guest, Vivek Ramaswamy, we did a three-part interview with Vivek on the live show, Sirius XM 125, the Patriot Channel, which airs every day, 6 a.m. Eastern, and available for you also on the SXM app if you want to get the full three hours we produce every day. Um, I, I went out to Ohio do some speaking and he was there as well we shared a stage but before we did we sat down for a very long discussion about the wokeification of corporate america vivek was on the cover of forbes magazine when i think he was just 30 years old uh he is a famed uh prodigy biopharmaceuticals and biotech ceo who is worth uh, lots and lots of money and has lots and lots of accomplishments under his belt. But he has turned towards the culture wars. And he wrote a book this year called Woke Inc., which I recommend. And we talked a lot about the themes there, which are very similar themes to what I cover in Breaking the News in terms of the media industry. Uh, It's very much a companion to that when it comes to corporate America. And he has stepped out and said, I'm not going to sit on the sidelines. I'm going to be a part of the what could emerge as a whistleblowing class that truly explains uh, what stakeholder capitalism and all of, uh, is all about and why so many of these corporations uh, seem to be pandering towards the woke in order to increase their bottom line. And it's fascinating stuff. He's a very deep thinker, and you're not going to want to miss this. And it's an extended interview, so you get bonus content appropriate for a Friday, so that should carry you all the way through the weekend. So plus, uh, we will have our caller of the day, uh, which is really the caller of the decade, which is Eric from Pennsylvania, who is uh, one of the most frequent callers to the Breitbart News Daily Show and always has interesting takes and analysis on the news, and uh, we will hear from him. But first, you're going to hear from my friends at AMAC, the conservative advocacy and benefits organization that has more than 2 million members and counting and is the right-of-center alternative or the non-left-wing alternative, really, to the AARP, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has become one of the world's most significant conservative groups in the country. Joining AMAC gives you access to money-saving benefits, cutting-edge news, and a magazine full of insightful takes on today's most important issues. But most importantly, AMAC is working tirelessly to preserve the freedom secured by our Constitution. With a full presence on Capitol Hill, AMAC is pushing back against the efforts to defund our police, weaken our borders, and replace your freedom with government controls. Stand with me and over 2 million patriots by joining right now at amac.us forward slash Breitbart. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S forward slash Breitbart. The benefits are great, but the cause is greater. Join AMAC 
at amac.us forward slash Breitbart. We have some breaking news, sort of. It's kind of hard to call something that took place for eight hours as breaking news. But yesterday, Kevin McCarthy, the I think uh, the man who's almost certainly, but not for sure, almost certainly going to be the Speaker of the House come uh, this time next year. Or I guess that's not quite true, but he'll be the Speaker of the House um, uh, almost certainly after the 2022 election. Um, it's a, again, there's going to be some competition for it, but he's clearly the front runner. The minority leader in the Congress spoke for a record eight hours and 42 minutes, which was a surprise. I did not know this was coming partially because I had a scattered day yesterday, but it was kind of I, I kind of couldn't, I couldn't believe this was happening. Um, and the reason why is because he wanted to block the Build Back Better agenda and the filibustering in the house is literal it's not actually a uh, it's not the, the senate filibuster is done by vote it's basically you just it, you you vote and then you pack it in in the house you you really got a filibuster you get a filibuster in the more literal sense and this is a record in terms of a speech i have to say i we all cracked up in the breitbart newsroom when over five hours in he announced that he believes his minute is almost up um, that was uh, pretty funny, we got to admit. Um, so I'll read to you from Joel Pollock's write-up, who tracked it for us very closely at Breitbart. And then uh, this this one's so fresh, not even on the front page yet. Uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, yielded the floor on Friday morning at 5.11 a.m. after speaking for a record eight hours and 42 minutes against the Democrats' multi-trillion dollar Build Back Better social spending bill. Uh, my one minute is almost up, McCarthy joked to 5.04 in the morning, referring to the fact that members of the House were originally given only 60 seconds to state their views on the bill. Before the vote that was meant to have taken place on Thursday evening, McCarthy's address smashed the previous record, an eight-hour, seven-minute address by Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi in 2018, in support of the delayed action for childhood arrival, that's DACA, that's an amnesty bill, which benefits illegal aliens who arrived as minors. Unless Pelosi... Who, uh, unlike Pelosi, spoke during the daylight hours. McCarthy spoke all night long, though not in high heels, which was, I guess, uh, one of the famous things that uh, um, the media loved about Pelosi. Boy, is she lovable. Uh, throughout the early part of the address, McCarthy was heckled and interrupted by a right Democrats, but the Republicans, temporarily on duty in the chair, refused to tell him to stop and repeatedly gaveled the House into order as he spoke. Eventually, Democrats surrendered and adjourned the proceedings till Friday morning, leaving McCarthy and the Republicans in the chamber to continue. Unlike the Senate, there is no filibuster, Joel notes. Later in the article, he continues, McCarthy broke down the bill, tacking it for lavish spending on Democrats' favorite special interest groups while raising taxes on middle-class Americans and providing an effective tax cut for the wealthy and high-tax Democrat-run states. He noted the bill does not spend on border security or expanding American energy production, and the Democrats rejected Republican amendments, including one to prohibit funding from going to the Chinese Communist Party. Throughout his address, McCarthy was backed by Republican members who sat behind him to present a unified appearance for the C-SPAN cameras, which continued to roll overnight. Uh, there was one, I don't want to mistake who it is, but uh, I was also getting a kick out of watching uh, one of them, it might even be Mike Garcia, uh, who is on the show uh, quite a bit, I think. But there's one of them who kept vaping the whole time, which I thought was also hilarious. Um, uh, noting that his speech was the longest minute that it, that it had ever been given in the body, uh, the McCarthy added that the country was at a tipping point 
which will add $750 billion to the deficit in the first five years. That's another big piece of news from yesterday, according to the CBO score. 750 in the first five years, uh, which he said represented a huge step towards socialism. And even if the tax enforcement that Joe Biden promised, by the way, this was another big thing. Remember, Joe Biden says he was going to pay for the whole bill by basically sicking IRS agents and more Americans. Uh, they said best case scenario, according to the CBO, uh, that that, would, that was half as good as Biden had promised. Democrats cited their own analysis claiming the bill would reduce the deficit, which the CBO, which is neutral and, if anything, probably is helpful to the Democrats, um, said, no, it ain't. So uh, McCarthy gets standing ovation. It's good for him. And one of the questions is why? Why would he do this? Obviously, if he thought the bill was going to pass, which is a not a good thing if it does. But again, you know, the, the House Democrats, if they can get the squad and the moderates on board, then, you know, they don't need Republicans help uh, in the House in particular, even more so than in the Senate. But one thing that is uh, uh, important about this is that He's blocking the passage. But I think also one thing that was resonating with him was just how angry folks like you were with that 13 Republicans voted for the infrastructure bill. And I think this is one thing that is so powerful about the Breitbart audience and really the conservative base in general is that the outrage uh, at those 13 congressmen and, and women and women when we PC here who voted to advance Biden's agenda and to give him a boost of momentum at a moment where he didn't deserve it. it is a, I think, and of course, with a bunch of crap in the bill, um, it was so roundly rejected by the conservative base. I think this has really spurred McCarthy on, which, uh, again, it's debatable whether or not he could have been able to pull off getting entire unity from the Republicans because there were a few of those people who'd already announced their retirement. A lot of them do seem kind of sympathetic to the Biden agenda more than the America first Trump agenda that's dominant on the Republican side at this time. Um, but a lot of people were saying whether accurate or inaccurate, and I'm kind of a fence sitter on this one, I admit that um, that McCarthy was at fault in this case. I noted at the time that it was not a great look for him or Steve Scalise, who's a regular on the show, the minority whip. Um, but it is it, it wasn't a great look. Uh, and I think a lot of that was him reacting to that. And I think he does want to be a Speaker of the House when the Republicans inevitably win. And I, I took this as a good as a good development that this sort of metal and backbone um, that he showed at, at this moment, not to say that it speaks to the entirety of what the Republican Party is up to these days, I took it as a very welcome sign and something that deserves to be commended for a number of reasons. And do we have any audio of this at this point, Paul? Because we're trying to scramble to get some up uh, early. All right, let's play 6A. Let's hear a little bit of it. Let that sink in. More than 2,000 pages, $5 trillion, twice as big in real dollars as the New Deal was. Let me be clear. Never in American history has so much been spent at one time. At one time. Never in American history will so many taxes be raised and so much borrowing be ne to be needed to pay for all this reckless spending. I listened to my friend Steny Hoyer earlier. He started his speech by stating this date. This is the date he's going to tell his children's children where he spent all that money. Every page of all this new Washington spending will be paid for or borrowed from you, the American hardworking taxpayer. Every page of this new Washington spending supports more waste, 
more fraud, more abuse, and more corruption. And every page of this new Washington spending shows just how irresponsible and out of touch the Democrats are to the challenges that America faces today. Nowhere in 2,000 pages and $5 trillion in spending are measures for more efficiency, better results, or just genuine accountability. This is the single most reckless and irresponsible spending bill in our nation's history. Amen. It's all right, I got all night. Some of its effects will be quickly felt, others not for a few years. But I guarantee you that no matter the time frame, all the new Washington spending in this bill is only the beginning of disaster. Uh, pretty good. And of course, this provided polarizing takes on social media. Uh, here's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Thank you, GOP leader McCarthy, for publicly confirming your desire to reward neo-Nazi members of Congress who incite violence against women under GOP leadership. She's always a victim. It's always about her, right? I mean, that's the whole thing. It is the theme of what she discusses every time. It, a narcissist among a group of people who are all basically narcissistic is pretty amazing. Here's Ilhan Omar, another genius. Looks like GOP leader is auditioning for a job that his QAnon caucus will never let him have. They will nominate Trump or Jim Jordan for speaker if they get the chance. And he is just making a clown of himself for nothing. Uh, that is interesting that there was uh, Mark Meadows was floating that again um, yesterday former Trump chief of staff that uh, maybe the Republicans will nominate Trump to own the libs. That would be an own. It would be a big own. They made Trump speaker of the house. Adam Schiff. This is pretty rich. If you took the worst order in the world, gave him the worst speech in the world and made him read it for the longest time in the world, that would be a lot like listening to Kevin McCarthy tonight. Oh, roasted boom, pencil neck in your grill. It's pretty amazing because pencil neck is one of the um, pencil neck is one of the guys who is one of the least likable, least charismatic figures to appear on TV on such a regular basis. It's I mean, I mean, Doctor Fauci is just such a natural compared to pencil neck in terms of someone who's costly on your television has so little to say. Uh, that's a, a meaning. So I, it's always a good sign. And I'm wondering if some of this is just pro wrestling because some of these takes are just so low rent. But happy about that. It's good. I like it. So we'll see what goes from there. But a good chance to raise awareness about some of the problems in the bill. And we'll keep you posted throughout the day at Brightport News. Um, jury is going to begin their fourth day of, of deliberation in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Uh, this is a, uh, a, a this is a surprise to me at this point. But again, I guess it's possible. Remember, I said this, that it was not going to be an automatic acquittal, even though, you know, a, a jury of Breitbart listeners, I'm sure, would be an automatic acquittal, but it was, it only takes one holdout who is sympathetic to the Joy Ann Reeds of the world that Kyle Rittenhouse really is a white supremacist who showed up in Kenosha, even though his family was there and he only shot white guys. And the intention was to hurt black people, even though he was trying to be a medic, uh, that someone would just, just hold out on the left-wing MSNBC narrative. And uh, maybe that's what's going on. Or maybe it is the fear of intimidation and threats of violence. Um, on Thursday, a judge barred a MSNBC uh, or barred MSNBC in general from the courthouse, or the judge did, because 
apparently a reporter who had allegedly followed the jury boss in his car on Wednesday. So NBC denied that the freelancer identified as someone named James Morrison had intended to photograph the jurors, but he did not deny that he was trying to follow the bus or that he was instructed to do so by New York producer Irene Bayan. Police are investigating. Very naughty. Very naughty to quote the uh, prosecutor. Naughty person. Shouldn't do that. And that's the type of intimidation that might uh, not just make this case feel compromised, but it might erode the faith in the criminal justice system. Uh, Yesterday's show, we opened up, and if you guys want to catch up on my take on this, uh, with the story of Soleil Omarova, who is the Biden nominee for the comptroller of the currency, who is basically a communist. She was a member of the communist youth, and she'd expressed sympathy for a lot of Marxist ideas. She's from the Soviet Union, came to the United States, and then wants to abolish private banking, wants all private bank accounts to be uh, sent to the Fed and to bankrupt the oil and gas industry. And these are not jokes. I'm being dead serious. And this is a, a this is a top nominee, a powerful position that um, Joe Biden has picked this person for. And she luckily the word has gotten out. By the way, she's also arrested for theft in 1995. I don't know how someone who could be in a currency position could be a, a, a thief. Again, the charges were dropped because it was a first time offense. But it does seem like one of those ones where that seems like that should be a red flag for this particular position. I'm not saying you can't give people a second chance. But I'm not saying that you can't have a great chance to, you know, run a great small business or, you know, have a position in the useless EPA as a desk jockey. We're talking about putting her in charge of a currency position after stealing stuff. But then again, a communist stealing something. I mean, how could that even be possible? Because communists, I mean, they can you even steal if you're communist? Maybe it doesn't count because you feel like, you know, you got to abolish private property anyway. So she was grilled uh, in the Senate, and I was very heartened to see some tougher questioning from a couple of Democrats. And there is some thoughts that Mark Warner in Virginia, John Tester in Montana, and even Sherrod Brown in Ohio might be in the mix of people who are suspicious of her to go along with Manchin and Cinema. So there's a good chance she doesn't make it here. And this is one where definitely should be stopped. Um, no doubt about that. And I think Biden is in a very lose-lose position here because either his nominee gets stopped or he's going to have a actual communist that he's appointed and gotten approved. And that's going to be a, another horrific look for Democrats come 2022, which is on pace to be a bloodbath anyway. Let's place an exchange with Sherrod Brown, Democrat Ohio, 2A go. Natural gas is a big industry in Ohio. Energy jobs are important in my neighbor's state, in the ranking member's state. News reports have highlighted you, you're saying you want to bankrupt oil and gas companies. Do you want to do that? No, Senator, absolutely not. Um, that was a poor phrasing, I admit to it. I do understand that uh, energy companies are a very important part of our American economy. Millions of Americans work in the energy sector. But in recent years, we've seen many instances where especially small energy companies have experienced hard times and even went bankrupt, leaving workers with nowhere to go. So what I was actually saying in that particular presentation is that we need to think collectively about finding new ways 
of helping workers in this sector to transition to higher paying jobs if we're looking into the future and the rise of new technologies. Incredible. She's just, just she, hey, you know what? It was poor phrasing when she said she wanted to bankrupt oil and gas. Uh, she didn't even say, if she said that my opinion had changed, that maybe, maybe I could give her one brownie point for that. But how could you take her seriously when she says that she, she oh, I just misspoke when I said I want to bankrupt oil and gas. So having to disavow kind of her past positions but not do it in sort of a sneaky way. I don't see how that comforts anyone who might have oil and gas jobs that they don't want to go away in the short term, and Americans are already hurting so badly. This is very important, very important exchange. It does make you feel like maybe maybe Sher Brown could be back on the table, who is at least plays a populist on TV. Here is a really important point from Cynthia Loomis, Republican from Wyoming. Three A, go ahead. Will, will you pledge today not to repeat Operation Choke Point and politicize the banking industry by targeting socially suboptimal companies? Senator, I will, if confirmed as the control of the currency, I will make sure that that agency acts only within its legal mandate and perform, performs, performs its mission and does not create does not step into the shoes of Congress and other policymakers who need to make those substantive decisions that I that I completely can, you know, get on board with. Um, but this is not a disavowal at all. And this is something that a lot of people uh, said that she uh, th- this is not some, this is not a clear ruling out of Operation Choke Point, which John Carney describes a Breitbart as Obama administration program targeting banks that provided services to companies that provided payday loans and other financial services. Officials regarded as questionable. The tactic was legally dubious because it allowed regulators to pressure banks to shut down businesses that had not charged with fraudulent or other illegal activity. Uh, basically, you have the FDIC uh, and other uh, in, in, in other key portions of the banking sector on the government side. Uh, being able to target things like ammunition dealers, pharmaceutical companies, or other businesses that have been law-abiding but are problematic, I think that's the buzz phrase, uh, to a Democrat administration. And that is not a clear disavowal that we just heard. So there's another one. Add that to the pile. Here's another one for all of you crypto heads. Let's play 3B with Loomis again. Go ahead, Paul. I believe that we do have government-issued money right now in this country, and it's working great. And I worry about allowing private innovation to undermine a lot of important public policies that we need to pursue in this country. Okay, and what are those public policies? Well, for example, national security. National security is a very important uh, public policy. Do you think that Bitcoin threatens national security? I am not an expert on Bitcoin, but I would worry if all of our financial transactions were up to some blockchain system where, you know, various actors who might actually be located in other countries, not particularly friendly to us, control the functioning of that system. That would be my worry. Yes. Yeah. So she's worried Bitcoin's a national security threat. So again, those of you who are into Bitcoin who think it is potentially a great hedge against sort of overpowerful command and control communists, like, I don't know, Soleil Amarova, well, at least she comes sort of clean on this one, that she doesn't like Bitcoin now. She does, she's not a crypto person and is a photo crypto. 
get another currency person, which is not surprising Biden would find someone like that. But just know that, that this is I'm fine if Biden cedes the crypto territory to us on the right. That is fine with me. A plus. But again, another thing to consider. Uh, John Kennedy from Louisiana, who is very amusing person in the Senate, had a pretty entertaining back and forth when he, with his portion. I'm going to play a big chunk of this here. Let's play 1A, Mr. Paul. You used to be a member of a group called the Young Communist, didn't you? Senator, uh, are you referring to my membership in the Youth Communist Organization while I was growing up in the Soviet Union? I don't know. I was Probably. Just, I wanted to ask you that question. <laughs> well, Senator, I... There, there was a group called the Young Communists, and you were a member. Is that right? I'm not exactly sure which group you're referring to. Well, the Pause. formal so, name so she's, she's is... not sure. She's not sure you're talking about the Youth Communist Organization, because he said the Young Communist Organization. Okay, that's good. This is this is where you get coached up, and then the coaching comes through, and then they, they had to be cringing so badly, the, whoever was handling her, preparing her for this. Go ahead. The Leninist Communist Young Union of the Russian Federation, and it's also known as the Leninist Komsomol of the Russian Federation, and it's commonly referred to as the Young Communists. Were you a member? Senator, I was born and grew up in the Soviet Union. Yes, ma'am. But were you a member of That's that? That's Everybody in that country <laughs> was a member of the Komsomol, which was the communist youth organization. Because so so you, that were, was, you were a member? That was a part of normal progress in school. Um, did you, have you resigned? From the youth. From the young communists? <laughs> you grow out of it with age, automatically. Did, did you... Did you did you send him a letter though resigning? Senator, so he just he's toying with us. He can't tell. Many many years ago, as far as I remember, how the Soviet Union worked was at certain age you automatically stop being a well, member. Could, of could you look at your records and see if you can find a copy mm-hmm. of your? Senator Kenny, I don't I don't interrupt. I almost never interrupt these, but well, you always Mr. interrupt me, Mister. No, I she renounced her Soviet citizenship. Well, I understand that, but you're not the witness. She is. Would you look at your records and see if you can find a, a letter of resignation for me? Senator, um, as I explained, I was part of the Soviet population. Yes, ma'am. I got that part. I just want to see if you look at your records and see if you find a letter of resignation. Let, let, me, let me tell you what. I've spent a lot of time on your record and, and here's what I found. Look, this is America. You can believe what you want, but we can't just let anybody be controller of the currency. You wrote your thesis in college at Moscow State University on, the title was Karl Marx's Economic Analysis and the Theory of Re- Revolution in the Capital. But you won't send Senator Toomey a copy. You studied at university, at Moscow State University, scientific communism which is the science regarding the working class struggle and the socialist agenda. In 2019, not 30 years ago, in a Canadian documentary, you called the financial services industry, quote, a quintessential asshole industry. (laughs) Um, You wrote a paper called Systemically Significant Prices, calling for the federal government to set wages, food, gas prices. In 2020, you wrote a paper called The People's Ledger, 
where you said we need to abolish bank accounts and make everybody set up an account at the Fed where the federal government will have access to your data. In 2020, you wrote another paper called The Climate Case for a National Investment Authority, where you said what we need to do the oil and gas industry is have the federal government bankrupt so we can tackle climate change. In 2019, you joined a Facebook group, a Marxist Facebook group, to discuss socialist and anti-capitalist views. Now, that's what I see from your record. And you have the right to believe every one of these things. You do. This is America. But I don't mean any disrespect. I, I don't know whether to call you professor or comrade. Wow. Senator, I'm not a communist. I do not subscribe to that ideology. I could not choose where I was born. Okay. I, I don't think not, it's just about that. I, I, I think it's about I think it's about the Facebook. other stuff. That's good, Paul. Let's, I could go on all day, obviously. I could play the whole thing. This is a friendly reminder to those of you in Colorado where Michael Bennett is up for re-election in Nevada. Well, Catherine, Catherine Cortez Masto is up for re-election. And Tammy Duckworth in Illinois and Maggie, Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire and Mark Kelly in Arizona and those of you in Vermont even. How about Patty Murray in Washington? Chris Van Hollen in Maryland, Raphael Warnock in Georgia. All of those places. I'll throw Ron Wyden in there because he's so horrible in Oregon. Uh, all of those places. A few others that are just deep blue. But those are all places where Democrats might confirm this person. This literal communist to controller the currency. Or comptroller. I think it's 50-50 the way people pronounce it. Um, needless to say, shouldn't get a Republican vote. Shouldn't get a single American vote for the spot. Totally inappropriate. One thing I will bring up, and this will be very brief, and I encourage people to pull up something that I read that was pretty unbelievable because uh, th this is this will be the um, last thing I bring up at the outset of the show, and is a coronavirus update, which, by the way, Jen Psaki in the White House said that even though OSHA's blocked the, it, the enforcement of the vaccine mandates, that uh, it has changed nothing and business should proceed as usual. Uh, it should not be a shock to you that that was the White House's position, because as I've been noting over and over again for the last several years, uh, is that the government is now using corporations to backdoor parts of their agenda. The Democrat and establishment in the Democrat Party and establishment politicians in Washington are using corporations to backdoor parts of their agenda. And the vaccine mandate is the clearest example of this, where the main enforcers are the corporations, not the government. But I will note that there is a substack called Astral Codex 10. And it is written by a guy named Scott Alexander, who is a psychiatrist. That's his pseudonym, who actually I featured briefly in the New York Times, in my book, Breaking the News, because the New York Times canceled him. Um, I will read you directly from Breaking the News about his background. In fact, the Times routinely uses bullying as a tactic, though I prefer the term intimidation, threats, pressure campaigns, or weaponizing fake news. For example, in June 2020, blogger and psychiatrist Scott Alexander, his pseudonym, took down his popular blog, Slate Star Codex. He claimed the New York Times planned to publish his real identity, threatening the separation between his online commentary and his professional life, as well as his personal safety, some people want to kill me and ruin my life. I would prefer not to make it too easy, he wrote. So uh, this is a guy who I've been following a little bit, and uh, he went through uh, pretty much every major study on ivermectin, 
And people are trying to figure out why ivermectin seems to have at least some effect in India, but just about nowhere else, maybe a couple other examples um, where it, it did make a difference. And a lot of you guys are on the, the, the train with ivermectin. And uh, you guys might know that ivermectin has been heckled as being a horse dewormer. Well, he put together that it seems like the pattern of where ivermectin is working is places where there's a lot of worms. And India is one of those places. Because there's a lot of different types of worms, ringworms, roundworms, etc. It's kind of a disgusting topic, but it is a huge part of life. And it's a miracle that we have so many deworming uh, medications. But so, well, what does this mean for the coronavirus? Why would taking ivermectin, if you have worms, have anything to do with coronavirus? Well, worms are uh, devastating for your immune system. You guys getting the math here? It's pretty unbelievable. So worms are devastating for your immune system. And what is the best thing to fight back against the coronavirus? Is it the vaccine, which I'm a supporter of? Is it uh, a lot of sunlight? I wish I'm a supporter of sunlight, too. It's good. Good to get sunlight. Uh, is it drinking a bunch of milk? Is it um, drinking um, a fish tank cleaner? No. The number one way to stop coronavirus is a strong immune system. That's the best way to do it. That's what's been fighting it off better than anything else. Not to say that there aren't other things that help, but uh, the best thing you can have a strong immune system. And you know what kicks your immune system's butts? It's worms. So taking ivermectin, if you got worms might do some deworming, and that might boost your immune system, which means it actually helps with coronavirus. Isn't that awesome? So that would explain why some of you called in and wanted to say, well, let's talk about India. And I said, I don't really want to talk about India because it's hard to compare country to country. And I'm not a doctor, and I couldn't connect the dots. Well, Scott Alexander, who went through it at Astral Star Codex 10 Substack, which you could check it out, he thinks that he's cracked the code on this which is pretty unbelievable because the logic is so good. I can't believe I hadn't thought of it. And I really can't believe even our horrible establishment press, no one thought of it there either. But the math is that ivermectin blocks coronavirus. The math is ivermectin blocks the worms that do huge damage to your immune system, which makes you more vulnerable to coronavirus. Unbelievable, right? I could not wait to share that with you guys when I saw that. And I don't know if that'll change anyone's mind, which is unbelievable. It just seems so logical and so reasonable that the whole trick to ivermectin is it blocks the worms, which kills your immune system. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's noticed everything is getting expensive. We're in the biggest economic crisis since 2008 with a government that's printing trillions and trillions of dollars. Consumer prices are the highest we've seen in 30 years, and inflation is certainly here to stay. So if the government continues its out-of-control printing and spending, and it certainly wants to, the dollar could continue its freefall and lose its coveted role as the world's reserve currency. So how do you protect your money, your retirement, your savings? Well, American Hartford Gold can show you how to hedge your hard-earned savings against inflation by helping you diversify a portion of your portfolio into physical gold and silver. They'll even help you move your existing IRA or 401k out of the volatile stock market and into a precious metals IRA and they make it easy. They're the highest rated firm in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. And if you call them right now, they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first qualifying order. So don't wait. Call them now. Call 866-670-7660. That's 866-670-7660. Or you can text Alex to 65532. Again, that's 866-670, or you can text Alex to 65532. They're great sponsors at American Hartford Gold.
All right, let's get right into it with Vivek Ramaswamy, who is a prodigy biotech CEO turned culture warrior and author, deep guy, interesting guy, and I think you're going to really enjoy this long-form interview. Also, there's clips of this up if you want to share it at Breitbart.com. Roll it, Paul. And I'm very pleased right now to spend a little bit of time with Vivek Ramaswamy, who is a biotech CEO turned culture warrior. He's got an amazing story and an amazing book, which I read and learned a lot about, Woke Inc., Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam. Uh, that is a tough title, and you do back it up. It does come off as a scam, the, the wokeification of, uh, of, of corporate America. But I, I want to hear about you, and can you give the audience a little bit of your background, because it is pretty fascinating and unique. Yeah, sure. No, thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm glad to have the, have the chat. It's been long overdue for us to get sure. together. So, so I was born and raised here in Cincinnati, Ohio, actually, where we're, where we're chatting today, mm-hmm. not very far from the house where we're taping now. Uh, my parents were immigrants from India. They came over 40 some odd years ago. I frequently asked my dad, why would you come halfway across the world to Southwest Ohio? And he said that that was actually the place where he could find a job that was closest to his sister who had come to Fort Wayne, Indiana. That, of course, begged the question of why his sister came halfway across the world to Fort Wayne, Indiana. And the best answer we ever got for why she did that was it is the only U.S. state with the word India contained in the, in the name of the state. So that's a, that's, that's a bit of the family joke. Uh, but, but they came here for an education. I don't think it's the same it. Indians. It's, it's not quite. But, but actually, if you go to Fort Wayne, some of them are. So, so it, it, it's, it's, a funny little, it's a funny little joke. So anyway... Uh, so they came here for education at the end of the day. They didn't have a lot of money, but they no. came here to pursue education and what that education could open up for them. And, and thankfully, they instilled the same values in us. And so I grew up in, here in Cincinnati, Ohio, went to public schools through eighth grade, went to private high school, went to Harvard for college, thought I was going to be a scientist. I was that nerdy mm-hmm. science guy, spent most of my time in the lab, decided to get out of the world of academia. I would have pursued an MD, PhD. Instead, I joined in a hedge fund in New York City that was beginning to invest in biotech yeah. on the eve of the 08 financial crisis in the fall uh, of 2007. Uh, good timing. Which it was, it was a rich timing for me because from an experience perspective, I learned a ton during those years. Those first three years, I learned a ton. I decided that I had this itch at the intersection of law and political philosophy that I'd never scratched. So after those three years, I told my bosses at the hedge fund that I was going to go to law school. I had a spot at Yale for law school. I wanted to you know, try a different side of my brain. Something interesting happened. They said, actually, keep your job. You've been doing great. In fact, go manage a portfolio for us. Just do it from New Haven or wherever it is you want to do it. So that was cool. So I ended up, I ended up being, a, uh, being a biotech investor for a hedge fund by day and, and a law school student for the other half of my day. And I loved it. I spent three of those years engaging two different sides of my brain, learned it, continued to learn a ton. Actually, the most tangible thing was my wife was my next door neighbor at the time she was uh-huh. a med student. And so we were literally next door neighbors. That's probably the only tangible thing that came out of it. But, <laughs> but there were three fun, fun years. And, uh, and so that, that was in 2013. Uh, I, I, obviously, it's a really rich education and background. But I want to go a step further back and talk about your parents for a second. Yeah, sure. Because this is a big factor in, in the book. Uh, and the, they're immigrants. And there's a immigration is always the top issue of Breitbart pretty much consistently with our audience. And there is a huge difference between an immigrant and an illegal alien and a resident and a migrant. And we get the concept of what it means to be an immigrant. I think we don't talk about it accurately on purpose in the United States right now. Your parents, honest to goodness immigrants, they're coming here to actually live the American dream. Exactly. Through the front door in a way that I think defines the country. Yeah. And I think I'm going to come back a little bit later in a second to tell you about 
what I think immigrants owe this country, and it may not be what you may not be what what we expect at first blush. Yeah, I I think it is to I think it is to keep alive the American spirit. Immigrants come to this country with their own feet because they want to live the American dream. And there's something that you value more that you choose rather than something that you inherit. And I think one of the great dangers in American culture right now is you have an entire generation that is inheriting a country and inheriting a culture that they take for granted. If you're an immigrant who comes to this country to pursue the American dream, my ask to you in return is that you actually help keep that fire alive in the people who may have grown accustomed to taking it for granted. Now... I will say this, and I think it needs to be said both to the left and to the right, especially to the left today. Immigration and border security are two different issues. They have nothing to do with each other. So I'm about as hard line as it gets on having a secure border because we need to have a careful accounting of who does and doesn't come into the country, both for the perspective, most importantly, of protecting the Americans who actually live here and came here lawfully, but also, as we're seeing in the last few months even, from a humanitarian perspective and being humane with respect to the people who may think they're migrating across here and actually get treated in inhumane ways or used by drug cartels or, or worse yeah. to be able to advance their agendas as pawns. For, for so many reasons, the world is a safer place when America is strong in its policies and I think America being strong in our border policy is a totally different issue from the issue of immigration and I think it's really convenient for the left to be able to conflate those two issues I think actually some people on the right fall right into that trap by also conflating the two issues, but it's actually a trap laid by the folks who ultimately. And, and, and I go a step further. I, I would say even some of the corporations are are in on the trap. I, mean, I think so too. They, they like the idea of us not being able to make the distinction between an immigrant who genuinely wants to be here and contribute, uh, and went through the front door, as you say, and people who are part of this uh, cartel supply chain factory type system that is bringing people into the country, often illegally, often in a transitory way, who are either a drain on the system or American resources and are, are more taking from the system than giving to it. And if they are giving, they're giving uh, for a short amount of time and going back or sending remittances back. It's so broken, and I think the way we discuss it has been so ruined, and that's why I love hearing stories of actual immigrant success stories, but there's always a commonality, is that the immigrants who succeed here love this country and they want to be here. And this is something that even Americans now are being taught that we're a particularly horrible place. Yeah, well, why would all these people want to immigrate here if we were, if we're, if we're actually a horrible place? <laughs> you know, I think that, and this is what the heart of the book is about, is the existential crisis of identity in America right now. America is going through an identity crisis. I don't think we have a good answer to the question of what it means to be American in 2021. Yeah. And I think... The America that I came to know as a child who was born right very close to here 35, 36 years ago is that America wasn't even a place. It is a vision of what a place can be. It is an idea that 250 years ago brought together a divided polyglot group of people and we have forgotten what those common ideas were. One of the things I'm trying to do in Woke Inc., at the end of it certainly, is to revive those common ideals that dilute this modern fractious group identity conception of our American identity to irrelevance. Now, the the problem though is when wokeness, this new group identity-based fixation on race, gender, and sexual orientation, when that dogma got merged with capitalism, that's really when it became unstoppable. And so that's why I focused my first book at least on this idea of how wokeness met capitalism. Yeah. The untold story of how these two strange bedfellows got in bed together, the neo-Marxist woke progressive movement on the one side and capitalist elites on the other, 
That's the curiosity at the heart of our current moment. And I think the best step towards a solution is to see the problem with clear eyes. And so that's what I lay out. Right. And and you give a lot of good vocabulary to help understand some of the phenomena that we're seeing, which we'll get into in a bit. Uh, but uh, the Woke Inc. Is, is partially autobiographical and is partially kind of the story of how not just you enter the business world, which is which is in it, of course, uh, but it's also how you kind of exited it, at least for a time. Yeah. And yeah. I, I want to ask if you plan to go back to it. Um, but talk about when you started to realize the wokeness of the biotech industry, or at least uh, where, where, where you were, was making it so that it was not a good use of your time day to day to be there. Yeah, well, look, I've been in several worlds. I've been in the asset management world, in the hedge fund world. I founded a biotech company. I've also founded technology companies. I've seen how elite Silicon Valley works. I've been in elite academia. So I would actually even make it broader with respect to having lived in elite America. I wasn't born into it, but I have lived in many segments of elite America over the last 15 years. I've seen how the game is played. And the thing that irked me is a group of people, especially in corporate America, who today pretend like they care about something other than profit and power yeah. precisely to gain more of each of them. Exactly. That is the defining scam of our time. It works like a magic trick. And, and the way it works is that if you're a, let's just say an executive at Goldman Sachs or an executive at J.P. Morgan or an executive at a biopharma company, you may applaud diversity and inclusion. You may muse about the racially disparate impact of climate change after you've flying a fly private jet to Davos. This is actually a pretty easy game to play, but you don't do it for free. You effectively expect that everyone else looks the other way when it comes to scrutinizing the actual features of your business that you would rather not be discussing in public. And that new trick yeah. has, I think, wreaked havoc on American democracy because what woke, we call it woke capitalism. You know, people in the more elite circles will call it stakeholder capitalism. Yes. Stakeholder capitalism is a benign idea on its surface, the idea that business leaders should use their businesses as platforms to do good yeah. for the world, yeah. to advance the interests of I, all I, I want to be very, very clear here because this is such a crucial concept that you lay out, the contrast between stakeholder and shareholder capitalism. That's right. This is one of the most important concepts in the book. So really, I want to get a really clear definition yeah, of yeah. this. And I think, and I think, thank you for pausing. I think it's really important that we define some of these terms, stakeholder yeah. capitalism, woke culture, cancel yeah. culture. I want to pause to define each. Stakeholder capitalism is the idea that businesses should not just serve their shareholders by selling products for profit, but also should advance certain other societal goals and take care of certain other stakeholder groups. That may include workers. That may include minority communities. It may include, according to many today, the environment writ large as stakeholders of a business. On the face of it, it may sound pretty benign. Yeah. Milton Friedman had a problem with stakeholder capitalism. Famous libertarian economist. Of course, your you know, listener base will know about Milton Friedman. Many of them will. 50 years ago, he said he didn't like this new model of capitalism because he thought when politics infected business, it would make businesses run less efficiently, yeah. be less profitable in making products and churning out products. And there's some truth to his argument. My argument in this book is the reverse, though. My concern isn't the way in which democratic politics infects business. It's the way in which actually the overreach of business leaves our democratic politics hollowed out. Because what this new philosophy actually demands is that a small group of elites, CEOs, investors, etc., behind closed doors determine not only the right answers to questions for the market, but the right answers to our moral questions as well. And to me, that is a threat to our democracy because if American democracy was built on any premise, it was the idea that we decide the answers to our most important moral questions 
through free speech and open debate in the public square where every citizen's voice counts equally, unadjusted by the number right. of dollars that they control. And this new model reverts back to an old world European yes. model where a small group of church leaders and business leaders would determine what's good for the rest of society. That might've been the European vision. That is not the American vision. And the irony is that actually, this is a message that would have been a message of the left mm -hmm. 20 years ago, which rejected the idea of wanting the influence of money in politics, which rejected the idea of corporate elites being able to wield undue influence. I don't know if you call that a left-wing or a right-wing idea. It's an American idea, but today, the irony is that as big business in this country has entered an arranged marriage with that old left, and we can talk a lot more about that because it's a story <laughs> yeah. I tell in the book. I remember. It has somehow emerged yeah. as a conservative idea. And so yes. call it a conservative idea, but to me it's more of an American idea. Yeah. The idea that stakeholder capitalism really betrays our understanding of the way American democracy is supposed to work. You know, it spoke to me a lot personally because I came from Hollywood or I come from Hollywood and I watch so many Hollywood stars who are rich and famous and powerful uh, that they were frustrated with their lives to some degree because they didn't, I guess, feel like making people laugh was a good enough vocation. And mm -hmm. they needed to take up causes and they needed to be the activist class. And that was what I grew up with, a steady diet of people who are funny on TV that taking these bold political stands as if we care what their political opinions are. That's becoming to uh, – that now that is sort of the celebrity class is – the CEO class in a lot of ways. I mean, Elon Musk is one of the biggest stars in the world. That's right. right. I mean, Tim Cook. I mean, these guys are stars. Mark Zuckerberg. They're TV characters too now. And they have their causes. And their causes are generally woke. And those... Uh, it's a sh shocking thing because we are giving them more and more power. And you write about this in very good detail in the book about how back when the corporation was focused only on making profit, it limited their power. Mm -hmm. And now that their focus is on setting our values, yeah, they're immeasurably more powerful. Totally right. I would just I would just go one step further where it's not just that they're celebrities. They're wielding power in the marketplace of products in a way that celebrities didn't. Like yes. take, well, take the power that Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey wields today. It's not just the celebrity status. Yeah. I mean, they're not particularly compelling as celebrities, actually. I don't think anyone would, would flock behind their personality in the way that they would behind a Hollywood star 40 oh. years ago. You know, maybe I'm underselling them. It doesn't matter. The yeah. thing that they control is actually the economic force that they're able to use not just to wield power in the marketplace of products, but to use that power to wield influence in the marketplace of ideas. Yeah. And that's the betrayal of democracy that takes a one-person, one-voice system, a one-person, one-vote system, and converts it into a one-dollar, one-vote system. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that the American framers really knew what they were doing. Both the constitutional framers, of course, but even the framers of early American corporate law knew what they were doing when they said that if you're a corporation, we want you to focus and give you a fiduciary duty to your shareholders to focus on producing and maximizing profit through the sale of products. Why? Milton Friedman might have said, well, that's to protect shareholders and create you know, incentives to, yeah. to create new things. That's half the story. The untold other half of the story is that actually in the American vision, we wanted to give corporations these great benefits. And I can get technical, limited liability, things like you, sure. you grant as gifts to corporate shareholders. But we had a quid pro quo in return. It's codified in the law. And it said that if you as a corporation are endowed with these kind of special superpowers, like limited liability, then we want you to stay in your cage. Frankenstein's monster better stay in the cage. And the cage of capitalism is great, but we don't want you to use that power to roam free and determine what stories do and don't get discussed. 
before a presidential election. We saw that happen through the front door last year. Exercising power in the marketplace of ideas that ought to be governed by an idea-based debate meritocracy rather than through this economic muscle-flexing game that stakeholder capitalism is really all about. In fact, you know, a good example in the European side of things was the Dutch East India Company. They were one of the most powerful companies in their day. They had their own army. They had their own currency. They had their own hospital systems. In America, we did not want the Dutch East India Company board sure. here. We wanted companies that made products and pursued them for the pursuit of profit. That's great. That's free market capitalism. That's great. Have at it. That's the American model. But we don't want state-like creatures operating outside the bounds of constitutional checks and balances. Well, I would say Facebook and Twitter, Silicon Valley writ large today, these are the modern Dutch East India companies on steroids because they can do what the Dutch East India company never could, control the acceptable bounds of what could be discussed in the public square. And I think that's actually the most dangerous abuse of corporate power of all. Uh, absolutely, and that, of course, is our focus so often at Breitbart. Again, let me mention the book again, Vivek Ramaswamy's Woke, Inc., which is out now, bestseller, multiple times. Uh, every, even the New York Times let it on, which yeah, is good. Yeah, I think, that, I think that, the, the bar, I'm told, is a little bit higher, but I'm, I'm quite, glad they quite, put it on quite, quite a bit, so, yeah. so congrats on that. Thank you. Uh, and I, I think that this is uh, this concept that some of these companies are almost operating like they're their own cities, like they're their own city-states in exactly. a way. Uh, and in a way, you're correct to note that they're almost more powerful than that because they control so much of the total, if you have a pie chart of the, of the dialogue that takes place in our country, the vast majority of it takes place on these few platforms and they've all got the same values. Uh, it almost feels more powerful than an army in some Oh, cases. it's far more powerful than an army. Now, there's a funny story in the book where actually in the early days of Facebook, there was discussion behind closed doors in Facebook about the idea of what it would take <laughs> yes. for Facebook to achieve sovereignty. Right, right. And, and when there was a discussion about whether that would mean an, eventually an international, transnational corporate military. There's a discussion about Facebook's cryptocurrency. I mean, the echoes yeah. of the Dutch East India Company are, are actually pretty staggering. Yeah. But those are, those are pennies in, by comparison to the real pound, which is actually controlling what can and can't be discussed. Sure. That's actually the greatest form of power of all. I do think, though, it's important to trace back the origin story of how this suddenly became the new model of capitalism. Yeah. And I think it's that untold story that goes back to when I got my first job out of coming out of college that I told you about earlier in the 08 financial crisis. And I think it's, it's important for people, this isn't a, a left-wing account or right-wing account. This is, this is, I think, a descriptive account of how we got to where we are and why each side, both Republicans and Democrats, look the other way and kind of accept a bargain that neither of them should like, yeah. but sort of do in a way that results in the, in the rise of this new force in American politics and American capitalism. So what happened after the 08 financial crisis is that big business was the bad guy in this country. Wall Street was the bad guy in this country. And I understand why. I personally believe that the bailouts after the 08 financial crisis were one of the most ignominious economic decisions made by modern American policymakers yeah. in modern history. And, 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 you, and you break down how favorites were, were favorites played. Were absolutely played. It was crony capitalism at its worst. And so the American public was appropriately quite jaded by it. I actually blame a lot of the Republican Party of at the course, time for making absolutely. that decision. 100% to, to blame for a new model of crony capitalism. And, and I think the chickens came home on that with, with Trump. I think a lot of the people who, that's tr- true. That's who true. turned in the Republican establishment did so because that they saw the favorites being played during that time. Yes, yeah, so, so that, that, that definitely is, is true as a political point. But if we, go, yeah. if we go back to 2008, whoever you blame, 
Crony capitalism was, was a problem. Sure. The public was jaded with capitalism. And what the old left wanted to do is that they wanted to take money then from those wealthy corporate fat cats, many of whom got paid, even though they shouldn't have justifiably been paid through free market capitalism, take money from those wealthy corporate fat cats and redistribute it to poor people to help poor people. Not my preferred policy mode, but agree or not, that is what the old left wanted to do. Right. But right around that time, you had the first black president of the United States, Barack Obama elected, the birth of a new diversity-obsessed woke left, waking up to historically identity politics-based injustices. And what this new woke left said, that actually the real problem wasn't quite poverty in this country. It wasn't quite economic injustice. No, the real problem was racial injustice Mm -hmm. and misogyny and bigotry. And guess what? That actually created the opportunity of a generation for big business in this country to realize they could actually go from being the bad guys to being the good guys if they just said the right things. Just like we were talking about earlier. Applauding diversity and inclusion, putting token minorities on your boards, musing about climate change, whatever the case may be. And so that was, the, that was the heart of this arranged marriage where you had a bunch of woke millennials effectively get in bed with yes. a bunch of uh, Wall Street bankers, as I tell in the book. Together they birthed woke capitalism, and they used that to put Occupy Wall Street up for adoption. And then Silicon Valley gets in on the act, does the exact same thing. The rest of corporate America gets in on the act. And that's the birth of, that's what I think of as not really an arranged marriage. It's really more like mutual prostitution. <laughs> but the net result, was the illegitimate birth of of this woke industrial yeah. complex, which is a force that is far more powerful than either big government or big business, because it's a hybrid of the two that can do together what either one of them can't do on its own. It is the hybrid, and that's one thing that's been uh, fascinating to me is to see how slow some conservatives have been yes. to understand this concept, that the key to being a trillion-dollar company uh, at this point, is not necessarily being the best company. It's not being a robber baron or having the best steel business or having the best railroad business. It is about government contracts. It is about getting the best. It is about government capture. Government capture. It is about the deals that the government allows. I mean, and you could speak about this with with biotech. I mean, a lot of it's dependent on government approving what you're doing. Uh, and then you can see the Biden administration. So many people during the Trump administration, they were cutting deals on behalf of Google and Microsoft with the Pentagon. I mean, that's how you get to be that size. But let me say one thing about crony capitalism 2.0 today. Sure. That's really different than crony capitalism 1.0. The directionality is bidirectional today, and the currency is a little different too. Let me explain it. Crony capitalism 1.0 is really simple. You have executives at Goldman Sachs, write nice fat checks, give it to a PAC, give it directly to a campaign, hire some lobbyists, get your alumni placed in the administration, Pretty simple system, get political favors in return. Everyone gets how that works. It's ugly, it's how it works. People get what that is. Crony capitalism 2.0 is different in two respects. One is when the ascendant party in power may not actually accept those political favors through the front door. Say when Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders were front runners of the Democratic primary, Goldman Sachs realizes that it needs to use a new currency. Yeah. Elizabeth Warren said she's not going to take money from him. She says she's not going to appoint any Goldman alumni or or, or Wall Street alumni into her administration. Say what you will about Elizabeth Warren, and I have a lot of critical things to say about her. That's a part of her, at least least her policy stand that I could could get involved with. I don't want government in bed with Goldman Sachs. However, Goldman realizes they have a new trick in their arsenal. (laughs) They realize she may not accept their money, but right in January when she and Bernie Sanders are the front runners in the Democratic primary, that is when they choose to make 
their declaration from the mountaintops of Davos that Goldman Sachs will not take a company public in the United States if its board is insufficiently diverse. Right. Where, of course, diversity is defined by Goldman Sachs on the basis of skin-deep characteristics that are, sure. of course, limited to race, gender, and sexual orientation, not ideological diversity, which, by the way, no one seems interested in. Everyone no. wants to make sure their board looks the way the rest of America looks right. without actually worrying an iota of whether they think the way the rest of America thinks. But put the sideshow to one side. This was just tithing in a new currency because Elizabeth Warren is obsessed with identity politics, is obsessed with her status as a woman, is obsessed with her status as a 116th Native American or whatever she is. And I think that they are able to tithe- I've been very charitable. <laughs> I, 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 try to be, I try to be as charitable as I can. It is tithing in this new currency where if you can't use money, you bow to this new temple of identity yeah. politics at the alternate new way. So that's the first way it's different. The second way it's different than crony capitalism 1.0 is even scarier though is that it's not just about giving money to government officials or their campaigns. It's actually about doing favors for government itself in return. And what you see today is it's not just private companies using government to do what private companies couldn't do on their own. It is government using private companies to do through the back door what government cannot do directly through the front door under the Constitution. That is the defining feature of today's crony capitalism, where with big tech censorship, you have a lot of Republicans who are duped into saying that these are private companies that are free to decide what does and doesn't show up on their website. Yeah. You know what I say to that? You're right, if they're actually behaving as private companies. But these companies are now working hand in glove with the party in power, responding to their threats, responding to their inducements, including in the form of liability protection like Section 230, working hand in glove with the government and the White House that's in power today to take down misinformation and hate speech as defined by the ruling party, as defined by the ruling president. Yeah. But they effectively are then doing the government's bidding in the guise of a private enterprise. And one of the core theses in this book is that if it is state action in disguise, then guess what? Actually, legally speaking, the Constitution still applies. I that these that. companies ought to be bound by the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States when they're censoring content on behalf of the government that the government could not be censoring directly. So those are the kinds of, anyway, that's one example. Yeah, no, no, it's great. And, 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 and I will mention your, your solution on Section 230, which is basically an expanded version of what you just said, is, is really a strong portion Thank you. of the book. Uh, and I enjoy that. I, I can't resist bringing up um, the, this concept of the gov of the corporations being the enforcers for the government, because as we're having this conversation, we may or may not have a vaccine mandate from Joe Biden, but we don't. Do we really? Have, do we have the OSHA rule yet? I don't know yet, but we know the corporations are enforcing it, and this is well. I, I the cases I focus on most is where the nexus between government and corporate power is as tight as it can be. So big tech censorship yeah. is at the top of the list. But but the examples are, I'm, I'll just give you a couple more examples. It's ubiquitous today. They want to pass the Green New Deal. Can't do it through Congress? Fine. Really pay attention to where yeah. the real action's happening, which is when John Kerry is going on a private roadshow with every banking CEO in this country and getting them to sign the new climate pledge. Can't right. sign the Green New Deal? Fine. Sign the climate pledge saying That's we right. will not lend to any project that would have been an affront to the Green New Deal agenda. And he's boasting about it. Yeah. I'll tell you something really simple. Big banks are not charitable institutions. So the question is, if they are signing onto John Kerry's climate pledge, it's not just because he's a friendly, good-looking guy. It's because they expect something in return. We need to know what that is. That is the way the system is played. I'll tell you something else that'll make your blood boil. We talked about the 08 financial crisis. 
After the 08 financial crisis, the Obama DOJ announces settlements to the tunes of tens of billions of dollars from these banks for alleged misdeeds during the lead up to the 08 financial crisis, pawning off mortgages they shouldn't have been pawning off and lying about it and so forth. Well, guess how much of that settlement money got paid to the public fisc in the end? Very little. And you want to know why? The Obama DOJ, the Obama administration, the White House, wanted to fund certain woke left-wing nonprofits, La Raza, National Urban League, and so forth. And the Tea Party, new infused Congress, said, no, we're not going to fund it. Like it or not, that's life in a two-party system. Call it obstructionist, call it what you want. If you're on the left, that's how our system of constitutional democracy works. Until there's a tripwire where the Obama DOJ then goes back to those banks. They get behind a closed door, and they say, you know those settlements we signed? Well, we got a deal for you. We're gonna reduce the amount of money that you have to pay the US public by two to one, or maybe even three to one, dollar for dollar. But all you have to do is for every dollar you give to one of those nonprofits that Congress, obstructionist Congress refused to fund, we'll give you $3 off what you pay to the US Treasury that belongs to the public. Oh, and by the way, your press release gets to say you donated to a nonprofit instead of gave it a penalty to the U.S. Treasury. Yes. Oh, and by the way, if it's organized as a 501c3, you get a tax deduction for it, too. <laughs> Big banks being fond of money love the deal. Sure. But this is actually the kind of crony capitalism that we ought to worry about, which is, again, government using a private company to do through the back door what it could not do directly through the front door. It is rampant. It is ubiquitous today, and I think it is sowing the seeds of a crisis of public trust, both in government and in big business, and I'm sorry to say, for good reason, that we're lacking that trust in the first place. So you write about it being a so social justice scam, the yes. wokeification of our, of our corporations, uh, which it is in a way, but to what degree do you think some of it is genuine, or is it all just about, about it's PR? It's a good question. I think it's about 75-25. I put 75 in the scammy and authentic category. I put 25 in the authentic category. I started the book wanting to indict this scammy kind of woke capitalism. It's yeah. a big part of what I focused on in the first half of the book. My journey was actually coming to the conclusion that the even scarier kind is the authentic kind. And, and I think it's worth pausing to just say a word about what woke culture Interesting. is. Interesting. I'm, I'm a big fan of just making sure that we're saying, describing what we're talking about. Sure. I think we're talking about a new secular religion in this country whose belief system centers on the idea that your identity is based on your race, your gender, and your sexual orientation, right. that if you're black, you're inherently disadvantaged, that if you're white, you're inherently privileged, no matter your economic background or your upbringing, no matter how much money you have, by the way, your race and your gender govern who you are and the thoughts and ideas you're allowed to have. And, and I think it's really interesting to trace the intellectual origins of this philosophy, too. I think they trace to dangerous philosophies from the 20th century, actually on the other side of the Atlantic. If you ask me, the two most dangerous philosophies of the 20th century were undoubtedly German Nazism, which was effectively identity politics on steroids, and Soviet Marxism, which was an oppressor-oppressed narrative on steroids. You combine the two, and you get their love child, that is modern wokeism right. here on American soil. So that's the philosophy that we're talking about here. And by the way, a lot of people will say that you're putting words in their mouth, that's what they're saying. No. Uh, you can take it directly from the mouths of the high priests of this new religion. Yeah. One of my favorite ones is Congresswoman Ayanna Presley of sure. the squad, who famously said, we don't want any more black faces that don't want to be a black voice. We don't want any more brown faces that don't want to be a brown voice. And the clever part of that trick is that once you have conflated someone's race with not just their skin color, but their voice, then any disagreement with that voice 
effectively becomes defined as racist, and there yeah. is no greater damnation in modern America than to be called a racist. So that's the, that's the ideology that we're talking about, and that creates this new culture of fear where people ultimately have to choose between either being tarred with that scarlet R or bending the knee to that new religion, and given that choice, everyday Americans are choosing to bend the knee, fearful of losing their job, fearful of getting a bad grade in school, fearful of becoming a pariah in the very community where they live. And, and so that's, that's the sort of the problem statement. Yeah. Now, the question is how that went from being about challenging the system, supposedly, to becoming the system. That's, that's the story I'm telling you. Well, you know, I think it's a very similar story to the immigration story, which is I think the left genuinely believes it, uh, and, and I think the right is okay with it because their priorities are their bottom line. So I think there's a lot of probably somewhat right-of-center people in corporate America who say, well, is this going to raise our stock? Okay, fine. We'll, we'll, we'll play along. We can, you know, add a woman to the board. Like, that doesn't sound so bad. Let's do it. And then yeah. if our stock goes up, our stock goes up. And then, but then now we're here. And I want to talk about your personal experience because you did, you write about some town halls you had at um, your your biotech company, um, which was, uh, the, the, could, you, could you give me the name of that again? Royvent. Royvent. Yeah. Roy so, so, back when I was CEO. Yeah. So where you were CEO and you would do these town halls. And I love the way you wrote about them because it was clear you were coming into them open-minded. You knew you were going to get confronted by woke millennials in your company and you're going to have to deal with it. And you really wanted to find common ground with them. You wanted to listen to them. And I, I, I'm curious what you felt like you learned from that experience. Yeah. But I do think it's interesting the difference between the rank and file and the boardroom. I think the boardroom probably understands the cynicism that we need to make these moves to keep our stock high and to keep it so that our work environment is uh, appealing to young people who want to feel like they're working at a company that has their values. But the normal people are working within these companies, a company like yours, who are not making a seven-figure salary. Those types of people are, I feel like their commitment is, is genuine in a lot of ways to this new woke religion. And that to me is, as you say, almost scarier than the cynical people at the top who are really just trying to get their stock up. Yeah, and whether it's their stock up or make their personal lives easier, that would be the way I would reframe it just a tad. Sure. Is to recognize that you may face deep-seated personal criticism from a small minority of people. If you bend the knee to them, there's no cost that you would face from the other side. So just do it because it makes your life easier. Makes Maybe you feel better about yourself. Maybe less likely to be criticized. So, so it's, I would frame it more that way than having to do with whether you're, you know, whether you're more profitable. But, but, but this is, but this but, is big. But, you're going to lose a lot of time if you're dealing with PR crises because people are in the company are upset with or weird, protests or whatever. Yeah. So, so, and I'm coming at this from the vantage point of my company actually wasn't built in Silicon Valley. In Silicon Valley, I mean, this the stuff you're talking about is on steroids. My company actually was Royvent when I was CEO was really wasn't something that would embody that Silicon Valley norm. Yet even still, I think you have, you have people who are pretty focused on developing medicines, in the wake of George Floyd's death last year, something yeah. happened across corporate America. You're right about this. Even normal, well-intentioned companies, including the one that I had the privilege of leading, you know, went through a reflective process that r resulted in airing, I think, a, a side of people's perspective that, you know, many, that I think took me by surprise. And so one of the things that I... I'm proud of that we had done during the time I led the company was actually recruit smart millennials from yeah. the top universities with a, with actually a simple pitch, which was the idea. It was a true pitch. The idea that if you're part of the talented next generation, do you want to go like I did out of college 
to a career track that involved taking a pile of money at a hedge fund and turning it into a bigger pile of money? Right. Do you want to program an app that makes somebody click on a, a, a funky mustache in a millisecond faster than their peer and being able to text it to their teenage friends? <laughs> you could do that. You could do that with your talents. Or you could actually work on medicines that have the impact of actually saving human lives. Yeah. I think that's important work. That's why I'm doing it. But it was also... I think in truth, but in practice too, a compelling pitch to get talented people to sign up to a mission that they care about. So what does that do? It selects for getting young people who, by the way, Pfizer or GSK, these aren't companies that go to college campuses to recruit next generation talent. They want somebody who is experienced. We did that too. But I was big on getting the next generation of talent into biopharma that was going into high finance or going into Silicon Valley. Yes. Let's get them into making medicines. That was yes. part of that yes. mission. That, that was part of what drove me. However, there was, there was a, a flip side to that, which, which was a fact that you had earnest, really well-intentioned, smart people who came out of universities where they may have been indoctrinated by a certain philosophy, who had their vision for what a company's responsibility was on the back of George Floyd being killed by a, a police officer somewhere else in the country. Tragic death, no doubt. Of course. But their expectation was that actually many of them at least, had the expectation that it was not just the job of a company that was developing medicines for patients who needed them to continue doing that, but to also be able to take on the fight against systemic racism, whatever that means. I think that is purposefully vaguely defined in ways that allow it to be conveniently morphed into meeting whatever moment ultimately the, the left decides it ought to meet. But anyway, you have an earnest group of young people that felt like it was a company's responsibility to do more. And this was this was bit of a dilemma at that time because I did not want to be in a position to say something that I didn't truly believe. I think that one of the features of a leader has to be somebody who's willing to say what they actually believe authentically and whether or not the people who are listening to you agree with you. Ultimately, I think that's what creates a culture of mutual respect over the long run. So yeah. I don't want to condemn systemic racism when I didn't believe it either existed or if it was defined in a certain way or if it wasn't defined in a certain way, I don't even know what it means. I didn't want to celebrate the Black Lives Matter movement, which is different than believing that, of course, black lives, and just like any life in this country, matters. And there, there's a lot of ways in which we ought to talk about empowering people in the United sure. States. I'm all in favor of that. But the Black Lives Matter movement that called for the decimation of the nuclear family structure, one of the actual great cultural sources of empowerment, including in the black community, no, I'm not going to stand by that and, and simply praise that movement because every CEO in corporate America happens to be doing the same thing at the same time. I didn't want to do that. At the same time, I had a group of earnest employees who, in their heart of heart, talented people, really felt the need to do something to meet that moment. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not saying it was a perfect solution, what we did, but, but at the time, I had to navigate that challenge. One of the things we decided to do as a company is we did go through a process of reflection of, I'm always open to think about how we can be a better company yes. at, at developing medicines. One of the mottos of the company during the time I led it was to think big and stay scrappy. Well, one of the things that actually did start to worry me, ironically, to bring it full circle, is what, were we actually building a scrappy culture? Was this a scrappy culture yes. of having this dialogue that we were having? Was that actually evidence of being scrappy? And, and even in other ways, once you get big as a company, you've had some successes, maybe you lose some of that early scrappiness. And by this point, we were no longer just a startup. Well, one of the things I, I thought about was we're recruiting kids from Harvard and from Yale. We're selecting for intellect. We're selecting for competence. But were we really selecting for scrappiness? Mm. And I think there was a valid argument to be made that, that actually we weren't. And so one of the things I said was we're not going to implement some sort of racial quota system. That's not the way I think you select for scrappiness. But maybe and something we could experiment with was 
selecting from people who actually had backgrounds of hardship. So we said, for anyone who came from a family initially it was 25th percentile or below, we actually expanded to say 50%, 50th percentile or below yeah. of median household income that came to the company, that stayed with the company for four years or more, would have their student debts up to a certain amount assumed by the company. And to focus on making sure that we got a certain number of people that actually came from economically challenged backgrounds, irrespective yes. of their skin color or their, or their race or their gender or their sexual orientation or whatever. And that was something that I think had the effect of galvanizing the company in a way that, you know, did result in a reflection of how to be a better company, but at the same time without just inauthentically bending the knee to an orthodoxy that I absolutely didn't believe in. In fact, an orthodoxy that I personally found to be to be revolting, not only to my capacity as a business leader, but more importantly to my capacity as an American citizen. Yeah, because it's fundamentally dishonest because there's the, the biggest concentration of poor people by a racial or ethnic group is still poor whites. It's still the biggest concentration. By percentage, it's it's larger in other races, but it is, in terms of total people, there's a lot of poor whites out there, and we're not allowed to say this for whatever reason. And my point is, exactly, but my point is, I don't care what skin color you are. Right. Black people, white people, brown people, everyone in between, everybody in this country, we need to figure out how to get to a path to getting an equal access to a good education, yes. equal yes. access to economic opportunity. Let's do it. And one of the things that that uh, really bothers me about our modern moment of American culture is we have bent the knee to this new victimhood culture. Yes. Something that a lot of people aren't able to talk about freely. I'm going to talk about it freely because I think it's important that we're able to be able to have open, respectful dialogue about this. I think there is a problem of black victimhood culture in America today. There are a lot of people who are shackled by a psychological orthodoxy that is a shackling orthodoxy that says that you are a victim rather than somebody who has an opportunity to be a victor. I think we should be raising our kids to be victors and not victims. However, I also think there is a nascent and emerging problem of white victimhood culture in the country, perhaps Ah. in response to that, saying that, oh, you're a victim? Well, guess what? We're victims too. We're poor and we have our own struggles. And then guess what? Joining the party are second generation or third generation kids or grandkids of immigrants who say, oh yeah, by the way, uh, we too are victims. We're not just good at math and science. We're also victims. We're persons of color too and come up with some story of disempowerment that mostly is made up fiction for going through struggles that actually their parents might have gone through or their grandparents might have gone through, but they're certainly not going through in well-to-do circumstances here growing up in second generation America but are taught to think of themselves as persons of color and join the victimhood club. And I think that that pursuit of the gold medal in the victimhood Olympics is preventing us from actually pursuing the real gold medals that we ought to be pursuing in every other sphere of real Olympics from the classroom to sports to our military. And so I think that's something that is, is, I don't don't say it in so many words in the book, but is kind of the underlying glue of the book is reviving a new culture that rejects victimhood, that pursues excellence. That's part of what it means to be American. uh, That's what we need to revive, whether you're black, white, or brown. That's what I'm all about. I'm in total agreement on this, and it is interesting how the biggest, the quickest way to get celebrity in America is to be a victim of something. Um, And, you know, we watch this a lot with the Me Too movement, uh, which started something that was probably pretty important and then ended up being just kind of pointing fingers at people um, for past grievances that could exactly. not be proven and it, it was and that got a lot of media notoriety and the ultimate of course was was George Floyd and not to say anything that happened to George Floyd was remotely defensible of course it wasn't uh, but it is amazing that that moment the country seemed to collectively snap yeah and I think we should be able to say several things at once we should be able to condemn 
and recognize that what happened to George Floyd is unacceptable, that now that we've heard it and seen the facts in the court of law, we know the facts, the verdict was issued, there needs to be accountability, and I'm glad there was. Sure, of course. We should also be able to say that George Floyd is not a hero. No. He is not somebody that I want, I want anyone's kid, whether they're black, white, or brown in this country, to aspire to be. And there may have been difficult circumstances that caused someone like a George Floyd to end up the way he did. Let's address those circumstances. But today we're trapped in this moment where George Floyd is implicitly celebrated as some type of martyr or hero. This is not somebody who we should want black, brown, or white kids to aspire to be in this country. There was actually actually a twisted version of this. We talk about the Me Too movement and and sort of the feminist movement in this country more broadly. By the way, which I think, if the feminist movement is defined as one that wants to have women treated equally as men in this country, count me on board. Yeah, me too. I'm a feminist on that definition. Same. 100% hog wild on that movement. But there's a puzzling feature of the intersection of what we saw play out in 2020 with, say, what we saw in the WNBA's response to it. So so there's a a guy, Jacob Blake, last Uh year. Who was arrested by a police officer, was was you know a victim of violent confrontation with the police officers, who was called, and the cops were called by an ex-girlfriend who felt that she was in danger by a man who had a restraining order against him for using violence against her. That's correct. Was refusing to leave her house and she calls the police. He's going in, and the first round of media reporting didn't quite get this right, going down to reach a knife, a, yes. a deadly weapon, and is shot in the back. Okay, So on the, on the back of that set of incidents, what do you have? You have the WNBA wearing jerseys yeah. that say Jacob Blake's name on the back of that jersey as though the WNBA, female NBA player, standing for female empowerment in many of the other hats that they wear, celebrating as a hero a man who was a perpetrator of domestic violence, violating a restraining order against a woman who he had abused, celebrating him as a hero. We can debate whether what happened to him was right or not. I'm a big fan of letting the facts play out. If the legal system comes out after looking at the facts saying that he was wrongfully shot despite the fact he was reaching for a knife, I'm on, as, I, as I definitely condemn what happened to George Floyd, it is entirely possible that what happened to him was wrongful too. But we should be able to recognize that that was wrong without celebrating yeah. the victimhood narrative that celebrates these non-heroes as American heroes because that's going to take us to a worse place going forward. You're right on the money on that. And I think the vague Ramaswamy story, Woke Inc. is the book, is much more interesting than Jacob Blake or George Floyd's. Sorry, sorry. Maybe I'll get canceled for that. But it's, it's a, um, it is not that compelling of a story. We don't need to dwell on it as a society. We need to be remorseful and do what we can to correct anything we can. But it is the collective obsession with the victimhood class is making America a much more mediocre place. Um, and it just does seem like that was the moment where officially we needed to hear what uh, whatever our favorite shoemaker or whoever makes our bourbon or whoever uh, makes our golf clubs, what they think of Black Lives Matter all of a sudden at that moment, I don't care. Uh, but is that moment now... Vivek, is that something that is part of the culture forever? Is this indelible? I don't, I don't think it's indelible. So I've been giving a lot of thought to this. And by the way, corporate America loves that moment being presented to itself. If you're Coca-Cola, yeah. you yeah. would rather issue statements about a new voting law in Georgia or teach your employees how to be less white 
then to deal with your own product's impact on the nationwide epidemic of diabetes and obesity, right. including in the black community that they sure. care so much about. What a great point. If you're Nike, you would rather condemn slavery 250 years ago in the United States without reducing your reliance on slaves to make your shoes sure. today in Asia to, by the way, sell $250 sneakers to black kids in the inner city who can't afford to buy books for school. Correct. This is great for if you're Nike, if you're Coca-Cola, if you're BlackRock, if you're United Airlines. This is a good game to play. How do we how do we sort of fight that though? Is I think the the, the real question that I have in my mind. I struggle with this. I, I I really struggle with this because on one hand, I see an opportunity to create companies that serve the seventy five to hundred million people who find this behavior of the rest of corporate America to be anathema. I think there would be a profitable opportunity. I think there would be a socially important opportunity to create a company that says that we are one nation under God operating according to a bill of rights that is non-negotiable, that believes that your content of your character trumps the color of your skin, that we believe law enforcement officers make a sacrifice and do a good thing for this country, and that we believe that capitalism is the best system that ever lifted up people out of poverty, no matter their skin color, especially here in America. That's a, that's a company that that's our beliefs, and we're dedicated to providing products to you that don't betray those beliefs as Americans. I think there's an opportunity to do that. I am worried, on the one hand, about creating two economies. I don't want to see a world in which we have two economies because that's the beginning of a path to a civil war. Once we have two forms of coffee, as we do today, once we have two forms of baseball, as I worry we might soon, if the MLB does what it does, or two forms of basketball, that may be the beginning of the end of the American experiment as we know it. On the other hand, we live in a moment where one side of the political spectrum has taken most of corporate America in that direction and leaves about 75 to 100 million people feeling orphaned and disaffected, not just by our politics, but more importantly, by our culture and our private sector. So what I would like to see have, have see happen, and I wasn't fully formed in my thinking at the time that I was writing this book on the date of its publication. I've been traveling the country over the last three, four months, giving a lot more detailed thought to it since then. What I would like to see happen is actually in the short term, some leaders step up in the private sector to create that company that I described. And that's not one company, but companies across different sectors, from apparel to beverages to foods to financial services to products to asset management, to be able to speak to people who have been, in the name of inclusion, actually excluded from our economy and from our culture and have been kicked and forced to be both denigrated from the very companies who they're forced to buy their products from, to be able to have an alternative. But my hope is that such companies won't just say that we're the right-wing version. No, we're actually a company for everybody. And by the way, the way capitalism works is I hope that the rest of corporate America then wakes up and says, actually, we've left 75 to 100 million people behind. We messed up, but now we're going to swing the pendulum back as well and create a company where that first-generation company that thought it might have had an opportunity to have 75 to 100 million people all to itself actually doesn't because the rest of corporate America recognizes that they can get in on that pie too, and we restore a pendulum where the private sector goes back to being apolitical. And that I think we need an apolitical space in our country, in the private sector, in the baseball stadiums of this country, in the basketball stadiums of this country, to bring us together, whether we are black or white, whether we're Democrat or Republican, whether we're a man or woman, gay or straight, we can come together in those common apolitical spaces such that we can still disagree in our politics because we live in a divided political time. That is okay as we have still those apolitical spheres that bring us together. But once politics infects those spheres, 
that may be the beginning of the end in our path to a civil war. And I think the way to avoid it right now is, unfortunately, the economy has been culturally infected for the last five years, especially for the last two years, in yes. ways that create a dangerous condition. I think the, one of the steps to the solutions, a lot of steps are going to have to come from our politics and from our culture, but I think some of the steps can also come from within the private sector that create a new culture of inclusion for the Absolutely. people who have been excluded. I think that is table stakes, basic table stakes for beginning to move forward as a country. And I hope some brave leaders step up and are able to do it. And, and that's something I'm weighing in terms of whether that's a path I care to go. Yeah, or and, and, and this is where I want to go next. And I want to take a step before we get to you personally, because you are rare in the sense that you're openly speaking out, almost kind of being a pioneer in a way of being someone from the corporate world who is blowing the whistle. But I'm struck by how few people there are who are doing this or who are this vocal. Um, I, I was just just this week as we're recording this, uh, Ennis Cantor making a big demonstration against Nike and against Xi Jinping uh, in China, an, an NBA star, Turkish. Of course, uh, and I've been following the, that story closely. And, and you know, I just want to say a word about that for a second. Yeah, please. I respect him for what he's doing because it is a lot harder to take that personal risk Yes. And it is to bend the knee during our national anthem when everybody else is doing it. You know what? I'll even say something that, that a lot of people on the right may disagree with. There's a certain element of what Colin Kaepernick did that at least I strongly disagree with the act, but that at least I can respect because it took at least a level of a contrarian spirit and bravery the first time around before he got to then, you know, figuring out how he can make money off of it and build a brand around it. The first time that that's he... Chicken, that's a chicken and egg that's thing. That's a chicken and egg thing. <laughs> that's a chicken and egg thing, and he was already kind of a declining player. But, but there's, there's some element of somebody who's going to stand up to the system and take a personal risk while doing it. That that narrow element of it, I can respect. Yeah. But the irony is that today there couldn't be a more conformist thing to do than to kneel or turn your back during the national anthem while all your other teammates are doing the same thing in a culture and a media that celebrates you for doing it. That's conformism. What Ennis Cantor is doing with respect to China, that involves real personal risk. True. This is a guy who is actually taking personal risks that Phil Knight, the CEO of Nike, is not willing to take, that LeBron James, who professes to stand for social justice in the United States, will not take. Will not take. Criticizes social injustice to no end in the 45th president of the United States to no end here in the United States, but is a lapdog of the CCP that does their bidding, biting the United States, but lying sheepishly, lying prostrate before their true God in China to be able to enter a Chinese market that gets them to jump to a Chinese yuan like it's a bone for a dog. That's effectively the culture that we've created in this country for companies that are doing business in China as actual stewards and lapdogs of the CCP. It took courage for a guy to be able to defect from that and call on LeBron James and Phil Knight to be able to step up and say, actually, you want to be a lapdog of the CCP or do you actually want to be somebody who acts by the courage of your convictions as you profess to do when you're criticizing microscopic injustice here in the United States? You take a microscope to literally, they call them microaggressions <laughs> here for a reason while ignoring the actual macroaggressions in China. So I like what he's doing. I love what he's doing and this is why, and it's, but it's unfortunately quite rare. I couldn't name a baseball player, major league baseball player who stood up um, to the league when they started to do the Black Lives Matter stuff and the kneeling. There's only maybe a couple of football players. Uh, it's a, there's very few people in the corporate world. Is there any people on the Disney board who are saying that? Well, no more theme parks in China for a while. Nobody say that. In fact, in fact, Disney did the opposite. They filmed. They they, they they two years ago in the state of Georgia say they can't film in the state of Georgia if Georgia passes a heartbeat bill or an anti-abortion statute. But last year goes to goes to the Shenzhen province of China, literally ground zero of the Uyghur human rights yes. crisis. One million Uyghurs, by the way, enslaved in concentration camps, 
subject to forced sterilization, communist indoctrination, worse. They film Milan there, they don't say a peep until the end of the film. And if you look, you look at the credits to that film today, they thank the local CCP authorities in Xinjiang that are literally enslaving those Uyghurs. They thank them without saying a further peep. And you mark my words, mm -hmm. I think in the next two years, two to two and a half years, I think two years, if you pin, pin me to this, I would say it's in the first half of 2023 if I had to guess. That is when China invades Taiwan. And I can talk about all the reasons why I think that is going to be a geopolitical disaster for the United States of the highest order. You mark my words, BlackRock and Disney and Nike and the NBA will not say a peep as they do it. They may even implicitly help them by praising them or changing the subject exactly as that act takes place. And that's a whole separate discussion from the other day. I don't think everyday Americans understand how damaging for the United States that's gonna be for our semiconductor supply chain, the phones that you use or the computers that you use. Forget about it if you ultimately lose our I would say, regrettable reliance on Taiwan to be able to provide that. That's an issue that nobody sure. is, you know, it's not a left-wing or right-wing issue, but it's an issue that nobody no, is really No, it's a very serious issue. But corporate America is going to aid that heist as it happens because they've already demonstrated that that's exactly what they're doing in Shenzhen. That's exactly what they're doing in Tibet. It's exactly what they're going to be doing in, in Taiwan when that plays out in the next two years. Too. And I, they're very, it's a, a, corporate culture seems to be afraid of cats now. They're, they're afraid of China. They're afraid of the woke left. They're afraid, it seems like, of the angry millennials who are starting to run the companies at least uh, the, provide the rank and file. And this is what is when America is not fostering a culture of character and of bravery and of people who are standing up for what's right, then it does feel like this is going to get worse before it gets better. But I hope you're going to tell me I'm wrong. What well, is your I think, vision I think, right I think now? it naturally gets worse before it gets better. But I'm not an analyst on these things. If you're an analyst looking at it from the outside, that's what you would say. I think it's a, it's a reasonable thing to say. I want to try to be an agent to make sure that isn't true. I think that ultimately history is changed by people who step up and act out the courage of their convictions. America went through an identity crisis at the end of the 70s. America didn't know its place in the world at the end of the 1970s. We were in a rough spot. I don't think that it's just an accident that the pendulum just swings the other way in the 1980s. It swings the other way because great leaders step up. Ronald Reagan ushered in a revival of American identity around the ideas that made this country great, around the ideas that got us to where we were, around the ideas that had won us World War I and World War II, then eventually got us to winning us the Cold War. That's what Ronald Reagan did. That's what great leaders need to do, is to step up to meet their moment precisely at the time where they're needed most. I think we live in a moment today where those leaders may need to step up in our politics they may also need to step up in our culture outside of politics. But sure. I think the question of whether or not it gets worse is going to be determined by, it's not a question that I just take as an analytical question. It's a question that is determined by whether or not leaders are going to actually step up and meet that moment. And right. That's a question for you to ask yourself. It's a question for me to ask myself. It's a question for everyone who's listening to this to ask themselves, are you going to play a role in being one of those leaders? If the answer is yes, then I think that we're on the uh, we're we're, a, we're in a good way a hair's trigger away from a domino effect in the right direction for a cultural revival of American identity that I think we need. If people don't, then I think that we're in for we're in for potentially the beginning of the end of the American experiment as we know it. And I'm very upbeat and optimistic about the people, about the American people seeing through this, seeing the arguments that you make and that I make on a daily basis and that we talk about at Breitbart. I, what I am more cynical about is the leadership because it feels like. 
the Vivek Ramaswamis of the world are few and far between relative to the Jack Dorseys of the world, unfortunately. That seems like there's just much more of the social justice left CEO. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about where, where you fall into this because you were a prodigy CEO and now you're a, a author and commentator and you're in the culture war. Uh, what do you think is the path for you? Or is it is it to start more companies, to try to be someone who fosters, maybe uh, bring up the next generation of leaders to stand up to Woke Inc.? And I love the way you frame it as it's not, well, I'm not going to make right-wing coffee or right-wing yeah. uh, sneakers. It's not appealing. Yeah. It's not appealing to me either. And I would like to think that... It's not appealing so, to our culture. Exactly. And I would like to think anyone who read my book from this year or goes to Breitbart, even if you don't agree with us, you'll at least be entertained yeah. and get something and, out of what and we're doing. something new. Exactly. And learn yeah, something new. People do. Yeah. Exactly. And it's the, and, um, but it's a, what do you think are the steps in terms of someone who is now put himself at the tip of the spear of the culture war where we've been at Breitbart for, for years? Uh, what do you think is necessary in, in that regard as a broader sort of right of center uh, anti-establishment yes, culture? So, so for, just from a first personal perspective yeah. for a second, and then I want to talk about what I think is necessary. From a first personal perspective, a commitment I made to myself at the start of this year was... I was towards the tail end of writing the book, was that I actually wasn't going to make a plan as to what came next. And the reason I recognize that is there there are a few things that came up earlier this year where people called me to try to get me to make a plan. I mean, there was a Senate race in Ohio that opened up in in February, and a bunch of people said, you should run for that seat, and there were some business opportunities to pursue. And one of the things I, I actually recognize is that was right around the time I had just stepped down or was stepping down from my job as CEO, is that I actually didn't want to be a CEO, I didn't want to be somebody who was on a political path. I didn't want to be tethered by anything because once you have a plan, in some ways you become a prisoner of that plan. And when you are speaking about the kinds of issues I'm talking about, I wanted to be unconstrained in really saying what I thought, unconstrained by a business interest, unconstrained by a poll, unconstrained by really the kind of thing that would cause you to revise what you had to say. I didn't want to be going through any self-editing process. So I'm writing, I wrote this book, I, I think I mentioned it earlier today, I'm writing another book that's coming out in a year and, and I want to remain similarly untethered about what I have to say. That's going to come out late next summer, early next fall. In the meantime, I think there's, there's and, and also going forward, there's probably two paths to have an impact that I think really could matter. One is in the private sector, and one of the ways to do that, I think, is actually to use the power of private enterprise to be able to create those apolitical spaces where people are actually able to come together, to be bound together across the division of our politics. And yes, version 1.0 of that may involve making sure you are purposefully including the people who are most excluded by the current culture, but it's not to create a right-wing product for them. It is to create a culture of inclusion that, as I said earlier, I think is just basic table stakes for us moving forward as one culture. I don't want to see a culture war. I want to see a cultural revival, okay? That's, that's you know, one path in the private sector and in our culture to do it. I think the other path is there is a role for political leadership in our country, too. I think there's a role for public policy to play to create the conditions for that cultural revival. One of the policies I advance in the book, without apology, is the idea that we need to make political belief and political expression a civil right in this country. That if you can't discriminate against somebody or deplatform somebody or fire somebody because they're black or Muslim or gay or white or Christian or Jewish or whatever, then you should not be able to fire somebody or deplatform somebody just because they're an outspoken conservative or an outspoken liberal, for that matter, either. And this isn't an academic issue, though. 
there were people fired for wearing Trump hats to work for a good part of last year at companies across the country. Sure. It, and by the way, it actually yeah. could happen to the 45th president of the United States. Yeah. It could happen to anybody on social media. So, so I think we need, we need public policymakers to not let them off the hook and just say these are issues in our culture. I think public policy can play a role in creating the conditions for that cultural change. Some of the Section 230 reform stuff, political belief as a civil right, some of the things I'm talking about in the book, I'd like to see translated into policy. I'd like to see civic service woven into primary education yeah. to actually create a new culture of civic pride spe and civic spe education. Speak to this, because this was a surprise to me reading reading the book, that you have this. You're very passionate that we should have compulsory civic service. It, woven into primary education. Okay, so, so it, would it offend your libertarian instincts for adults? Maybe. But kids aren't adults, and part of what we recognize as a society is in order to be a fully formed agent and a fully formed adult, you need to have the foundation as a kid to be able to do it. So I'm a big fan of weaving civic service into primary education, in the long run, having a culture of people who may not be unaccustomed to be able to be useful should times call for it. Fast forward to 2050, where we are with China, to be able to actually be able to stand our own as a country yeah. on the global stage. But more importantly, to create a shared American civic identity that dilutes this fractious group identity yeah. to irrelevance. As a side note, I'm also, I would also say things that I couldn't have imagined myself saying 10 years ago. I think that we should have a conversation about whether addictive social media should be a part of any child's upbringing yeah. before the age of 18 or at least 17 or 16 to say that actually if you're a certain age and you can't smoke a cigarette, an addictive cigarette, then maybe you shouldn't be using an addictive social media product either. And once you're an adult, yes, we live in a free society and you're free to make that decision for yourself, but that doesn't apply to the decisions we make for our kids. These are, these are policies that aren't right-wing or left-wing policies, but I don't really hear anybody on the right or the left no. talking about them. But I think that there's an opportunity for the conservative movement to really seize on this revival of national identity, this yeah. revival of American identity. That's what I call real nationalism, by the way. And I'm not afraid to say that I'm a, I'm a non-white nationalist in that respect, a nationalist <laughs> built around American ideas. That's what I think that we, we, we need to revive as a political movement in this country. Right. Now, politics is pretty unappealing as a, as a sport. And so whether it's driving change in the private sector or whether it's driving change through public policy, some combination of the two, that's what I'm evaluating right now in the next 12 months. How do I want to have that impact be greatest? But that's for me. But, but I hope every capable American in different spheres of their lives is reflecting on that same question for themselves because I can't remember a time in my life where we more badly needed people to be able to honestly reflect on how they could make their contributions we need Americans to live out their civic duty right now. We need conservatives to live out their civic duty right now. Now is a moment that calls for it. And, and, and I think that actually brings that point about, the remark about civic duty just reminds me of a separate point that I'm not sure I've made in a, you know, in a you know, aired conversation like this with anybody, but I frequently talk to my friends and family about is, it, many of whom include liberals, by the way, who want to talk about redistribution of wealth, I'm not a big fan of redistribution of wealth as a policy agenda in this country only because I think it kills our culture of excellence. And I think yes. part of a culture of excellence involves having outcomes that reflect unequal outcomes under conditions of equal opportunity. But here's what I do say when I'm talking to my friends and family on the left that I think brings them into the conversation a little bit more effectively is that I'm not a fan of the redistribution of wealth, but I am on board for a conversation about a redistribution of duty in this country. Mm. And I think that if we live in a country and in a national fabric where we share our civic duties evenly, that no matter how many green pieces of paper you have, that if you're a kid, you share your civic responsibility the same way, looking at turning on the television and seeing somebody else's kids going in the National Guardsmen that lift people out of a hurricane in Louisiana, why is it them and not 
you or I, or for that matter, maybe you've, you've done more than I have. For all I know, I, I certainly wasn't there lifting them out. I think we should ask ourselves that question. I'm personally in the camp of believing that we have a civic duty to bring the Afghan allies who stood for this country, right or wrong, what we were doing in Afghanistan, took personal risk for themselves and their families. I think we do have a civic duty to bring them back. But I don't think we should just be bringing them to central Ohio or bringing them to Wisconsin. We should send them to Martha's Vineyard. We should send them to Hollywood. Certainly. We should send them, to, Mar- we should send them to the Hamptons. We should bear our civic duties evenly as Americans. And I think against that backdrop, where we say we're actually equal as citizens, against that backdrop, we, I think, on the left and on the right, honestly, are going to be fine with a system that rewards excellence and has unequal material outcomes where certain people have more green pieces of paper than others or certain people are better at basketball than others or certain people are better musicians than others or certain people are happier than others. That's, that's life. That's life in an excellence-oriented society is we have unequal outcomes as long as we're bound together as co-equal citizens who share our civic duties evenly. And I think no better place to start than at a young age to create that cultural condition such that we don't have to be so insecure and apologetic about it when we also pursue our own dreams through our system of free market capitalism once we're free agents and adults. So for people who are business-minded, who aspire to be in a big corporate boardroom one day, is it a welcome place? Is it a place where someone with your ideology, which is obviously not radical, seems pretty straightforward and consistent, uh, it, it seemed like it became it became untenable for you, and this makes me concerned that for the future that it's going to be increasingly hostile to people who have normative right of center viewpoints. Well, well look, you have a, a lot of economic actors today uh, who are using force as a substitute for free speech and open debate to settle political questions. I, I, you know, no discussion about this topic would be complete without calling out BlackRock and Larry Fink Certainly. specifically. Invisible to most Americans. People yes. need to wake up to the fact that actually many of their savings and dollars may find their way through our Plinko system of the financial architecture of this country into BlackRock's hands to invest their shares and vote their shares in ways that would make their blood boil without recognizing that it was actually their money and their assets to do it in ways that use economic force to settle questions ranging from how we address climate change to racial injustice in this country based on one man's conception of it, Larry Fink, rather than actually recognizing that he's misusing other people's assets to foist his views on American democracy. You have employers that will fire employees for saying the, right, the, the, right, the wrong thing. That's the use of force to settle these questions rather than through the use of free speech and open debate. And so do I think it's a welcome environment, broadly speaking, in elite corporate America? No, I don't think it is. But there's two sides to the story, and I think that the, the rejection of victimhood has to cut both ways. I you agree. have to wear that shoe on the other foot. If you are in a corporate boardroom and you believe what you believe, you have a civic duty to be able to speak your mind freely. I agree. And too many people actually may harbor those beliefs and go home and share it with their family. Well, you would believe what happened today, but don't use my name when you say it. The yes. number of people who actually email me or message me on social media with some story or, or other from corporate America but say, but I'm having to message you from this account because I don't want my name used. Well, I think that they're every bit as much to blame for this culture too. And I think every American today has a civic obligation when they're the only person in the room who believes what they do to actually stand up and in a civil way, in a respectful way, but in a way that isn't diluted, that doesn't modulate what they have to say, to say what they actually believe. Yes. And, and my commitment to the people who do that is that 90% of the time, you're going to find that you actually weren't the only person in the room That's who correct. what you did. That's what it's actually going to take. And so, yes, I indict a lot of the conditions in corporate America and, and elite institutions and our universities and our nonprofit boards and our philanthropies. It's not a welcome place. But 
It's not enough to embrace this victimhood culture in return and bemoan the fact that we can't speak up. You can speak up. It may involve taking some level of risk, but you know what? Nothing great was ever created without taking now. a risk. America is a great thing worth creating, and America needs to be recreated and reborn in a way that actually involves people who are taking risks to lead that rebirth. And I think, you know, you know, my, my family is Hindu. I'm, I was raised Hindu. I'm Hindu today. Uh, you know, the Hindu story of reincarnation, is of rebirth, is actually a story of an individual journey of a soul that recognizes that the body that it inhabits is, is occasionally unfit for, and, and, and maybe not up to the task anymore, of, of harboring and protecting that soul that needs a new body to be reborn. And I think America may be at one of these moments where we need a reincarnation of the American soul where the soul is the same. But the body needs to be one that actually is, has, has greater muscle for the fight of courage that's required to protect a soul that's no longer being protected by the body that it inhabits today. And I think that that's going to require more people being courageous and stepping up to do it. You're, I think I would only take it a step further in that I think we have to now. I think it's now too late. It's officially not optional anymore. It's necessary. And I'm a big believer whether you're in business or in our politics, whatever is necessary is always possible. So it's necessary now. It's possible. The question is, who's going to step up to actually make the necessary happen? Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, credit to you for the book Woke Inc. and for your incredible life so far. And I'm really uh, excited to see what you're going to do next. Thank you. Yeah, very exciting that the freedom of the platform, not just on SiriusXM Patriot, but also the podcast format, that from time to time we can go deep and go really long form with someone who is is interesting and I think is worth your time. And we'll do that from time to time. Uh, I just recorded something epic with Victor Davis Hanson, who might be the most important historian in the country. We'll have that uh, coming up for you guys down the road as well after we uh, edit and produce it. So uh, it's exciting, and I want to offer that to you uh, beyond just sort of the short hot take version of the of the news getting in depth with people something we really love to do at Breitbart and will be a big part of the podcast uh, okay we're gonna get into our caller of the day as I noted earlier maybe the caller of the decade um, uh, Eric from Pennsylvania has been a consistent contributor to Breitbart News Daily really since the beginning and it, I, he embodies exactly what I love about a citizen journalist responsible well-informed well-read and has a much clearer eyed vision of this country than I think the vast majority of people uh, in your average newsroom. And that's why we love our callers of the day. And we love all of our callers at Breitbart News Daily. Let's hear from Eric. You talk about how people are woke and stuff. The American family has woke and they are in shock. I mean, I think COVID gave these people a reset. Mm. Basically, they're looking back and they're seeing what our government's doing. And, 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 and that's how that thing was discovered with the schools. And I think it woke up the American family. And I think that's the progressives' worst nightmare, that people are getting together. See, they want to divide everyone. That's how they gain their power. They divide the masses, hate each, make them hate each other. I mean, it's proven history. So I, I think it's a great thing that what's happening, and I hope it continues. And, you know, I, it was funny you were talking about uh, Pelosi and her high heels. I she probably was uh, dusting out her uh, her mouth suit with the rest of the people, getting ready to think that going to convert America over to, to communism. I don't think it's going to happen. I think we're going to fight and fight hard. And McCarthy's a, 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 a fine example of that. Who'd ever think that he would go on Who'd the ever House thought, board? exactly. So, I mean, if he can do it, the American family and the people out there, you know, even the ones that weren't on the fence, 
you know, with uh, the, the Trumpism and all that, I think they finally figured out, wow, these people might were right. And, uh, I, and hopefully the percentages are there and uh, we take back America. So, Eric, let me push back a little bit because I'm doing this. I'm having this battle internally. There's a couple of things that I think are sort of uh, the, the latent issues that we got to deal with as a conservative movement. First of all, the, the media, the culture in the media, there's all these people who are getting elevated um, by conservative media and also by establishment media who are anti-woke, but I don't think are actually going to vote out the bad guys. And I think that is an issue because we might get very excited by some of the things they say, but they might not end up helping because when you get the people who understand the problems but don't understand the solutions, sometimes that could be a big problem. I want your take on that. I think I, I, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, well, uh, McCarthy's got to make sure that he gets all of his ducks in order because he sees what's the wave is coming. No. And, and you don't want to do what the uh, progressives did where they're fighting amongst each other and don't get anything resolved. That in is fact, true. It, 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 it works against you. So basically, he's got to get all of his leadership together and not go to Puerto Rico and do a fundraiser to bring in all that dirty money. No, you got to get together and talk and, and get all your governors and everyone together and say, hey, man, what's our plan? We need to come up with someone. We don't need to get in power and then decide, okay, now what do we do? And, that, and you've got to figure out who's on the team and who isn't. You've got to do it now. You can't do it once you're in power. It's too late. So that's my opinion on that. Yeah, I think that is true. The other issue, though, is that the fact of the matter is, is that so many of our core institutions – um, I mean, I was watching a television show with my wife yesterday, and I, I did I had botched the DVR recording, so we were forced to watch commercials. And the you know the way NBC News presents the Beijing Olympics, the genocide games that's coming up, as if it's just no big deal that America's about to go over to Beijing, China, yeah. and to in in the middle of a pandemic that the most oppressive, most racist regime imaginable and a regime that's trying to vanquish us on the world stage, and we're just going to go and we're going to dignify them in this way, is so appalling to me, and yet we're all in on it. We're all in on it, and we're just going to go into this. We're going to coast through it, and uh, it, it is so. It, it does make me feel like maybe we're not getting through to enough people. Well, here's the thing about that Olympics and, and Comcast. that you know They had those little skits during their primetime news, what, behind the wall? Yeah, it, it's like more like behind the curtain. Don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain. I'm telling you right now, it's, a, it's shameful what Comcast is doing, promoting themselves, and then they're you know, locking hand-in-hand hand in step, like I said, breaking out the mouse suit, and promoting all for a lousy dollar. The Olympics shouldn't happen. These people committed genocide and are getting away with it. It just disgusts me. And I'm sure a lot of Americans are out there thinking the same thing, but they're scared. And it's time not to be scared, America. Time to stand up for your rights. Talk what you believe. Don't let these people shut down your First Amendment rights. I mean, I see all the feedback McCarthy's getting from his own colleagues, calling them neo-Nazis and stuff. These people have gone over the uh, you know, over the cliff, and they ain't coming back. They're all in. So if they're all in America, we've got to be all in. And this thing about the Olympics is disgusting. Comcast, how, I don't even know if these people watch their network. 
I mean, it is the most racist network on the planet. It, it, yeah. It's just disgusting what's going on. I mean, what was that, Joy Reid or whatever her name is? Sure. She's Reverend Wright in a, in a skirt is what she is. I mean, oh, I, right. I don't understand what's well going said. on with people that they think they can get away with it, Alex. And I don't think they're going to. I think the American people have had enough, and the fight has begun. And I see it coming, and I hope it uh, turns out well for us. I really do. I got American all right, that'll do it for today. Big thanks to Paul D'Amelio and Greg Evan, our producers, and a big shout-out to Matt Purdy, our top videographer at Breitbart News, who helped produce the Ramaswamy interview. And thanks to all of you for telling 10,000 friends and family members about the new Breitbart News Daily podcast. We're not advertising at this time, aside from a couple of bits and bobs on the front page of Breitbart.com, so the best thing you can do if you like the show is to tell people about it and encourage them to subscribe, leave a five-star review wherever you're getting your podcast, leave a nice comment. All that stuff is great. And uh, we will see you next time on Breitbart News Daily. All the time.